Hey, it's Monty and Khalees from the Fabulous 413. We just moved into our fabulous Hamden Street Studios in Springfield, which are only sometimes working correctly. Uh, yes, there are some not-so-fabulous sa- side effects, such as with today's show. Although it was really awesome, went off to a great start, I flubbed a whole lot of words. We ended up losing the first three-ish minutes of the recording, so... So we're going to recreate the intro, and then we're going to try to seamlessly mash it together with what we do have of the recording, so willingly suspend your disbelief. And apologies to our friends from the play La Ruta at Smith College. So here goes the recreation. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll continue our celebration of National Poetry Month with Northampton Poet Laureate Karen Schofield. And we'll get deep into the word weeds with word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield, and learn the nerdy details as to exactly how words get defined. But first, this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Smith College is the final weekend of the Isaac Gomez play La Ruta. And joining us is the director of the Performance Smith Theater Department's newest faculty member, Monica Lopez Orozco, and an actor from La Ruta, Nidaline Cruz. Welcome. And quick warning, as we discuss the show, the play does deal with issues of femicide and assault. Monica, tell us about the play. And this is where it seamlessly will, you won't even know that this was faked. How did the first weekend of performances go, uh, director Monica? Ooh. First, then we'll get to then we'll get to the, <laughs> the actor. I am so proud of I am so proud of the work. Um, it's brave, and I t- I'm gonna cry. Yes, you can. <laughs> um, I tell the actors all the time um, they are on stage opening up a wound, mm. and it hurts. It's so painful. It's breathtaking, and it's painful. Um, the show really resonated with a lot of people. Afterwards, the feedback was commenting on, first of all, the enormous talent of the cast, which I'm 100, wholeheartedly 100% agree with, um, and that they had managed to, they're managing to do something very difficult every night. So I'm, I, I'm, uh, it's so weird to say I'm happy with it. I'm glad the story is being told in the way that it's being told, and I owe it all to everybody that, that is putting their hands on it. Now, we've mentioned yeah. that there, there, you know, we've even given a warning that there, femicide is a, a part of this. And we've, and we've mentioned it a little bit about what's gone on between El Paso and Juarez mm-hmm. and the situation there. But if those if there are people who aren't familiar at all with what has gone on there, tell us a little bit about about what has happened and in what time frame. Sure. Yeah. Um, it is an ongoing crisis. Uh, and the murders of these women started to really become um, brought to public attention in the 90s. And they noticed this pattern and realized, well, this is an accidental, that women were being found, disappeared, taken from the streets, taken from... La Ruta is the term for the bus that... These maquilas, oh gosh, NAFTA, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, these maquilas, these uh, U.S.-owned factories were coming into Juarez for cheaper labor. Um, and these workers, these women would be, um, they would have the these shuttle, this bus service, taking them into other parts of town closer to their homes. And they were disappearing along this route, but then disappearing from town, from Ciudad Juarez in, in general, the centro, the, the central part of the city. Um, and when they, and they discovered this mass grave at this cotton field and just started to put it all together. And who's killing these women? Um, everybody's responsible for it. It's, it's. It's the cartels, it's the police who are turning a blind eye because it's the police's family or it's it's some unknown. Um, everybody 
misogyny. It's misogyny. It's the yeah. factories who aren't providing enough like coverage for their it's workers capitalism. either. It's capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's another part like, of it. You're right. Like it, the blame is everywhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we're talking literally hundreds of women who have disappeared and only a few convictions. Thousands. Thousands. Thousands at this yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. going it's to say like it's more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Hundreds confirmed dead though, right? Yeah. And Thousands then, and then, confirmed dead well, and yeah. more, possibly more beyond. Yeah. yeah. So we're speaking with the director of the play La Ruta, which is happening this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Smith College, Monica Lopez Orozco, and one of the actors in La Ruta, Nidaline Cruz. Nidaline, tell us a little bit about your character. Hello. So um, the character I'm playing in the show, her name is Maricela. She's heavily inspired by a real figure. Um, her name was Maricela Escobedo, and she um, had a daughter named Ruby. Ruby, and her daughter was killed by her partner. And once she had found out about the murder, um, Maricela used all of her power to get that man convicted. He was one of the first kind of men to be arrested for femicide, which at that point, it was around 2008 to 2010, they were, Mexico was starting to implement more convictions against these type of murders. And when he went into trial and basically confirmed where Ruby was, his involvement with the crime, he was let, um, what's it called? He was let go or they found him not guilty of yeah. the crime. And after that, Ruby, she, not after that, Maricela, she started to protest and she would walk up and down Juarez to Chihuahua in like a poster of her daughter's um, face and just kept protesting and walking through and demanding justice. And she would look for this man. They let him go. He escaped to other parts of Mexico and she would find him and follow him around. And he eventually got into um, a specific gang in Mexico, Los Zetas, and had the protection of that gang. And eventually she was murdered by him and his affiliates in the gang. Because she was being so outspoken. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also because she was starting to go up against the government and the gangs themselves, which are very heavily connected. And she had no protection. She had no kind of safety from the police she was looking to get help from. And she was murdered. But she's become a huge figure in Mexico and around of fighting against femicide. She's really made many people confident in fighting for their rights. Yes, and also um, on Netflix, there's a documentary called The Three Deaths of Maricela Escobedo. Mm. And I watched a lot of that documentary to help me get more information and kind of get more into her mindset because there's not much on her. But this documentary is really heavily participated with her family and really gives a more specific look on everything that's been happening. I want to hear more about you as a student learning about these things through this play, which is happening this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Smith College. We have to take a little break here. We're speaking with Monica Lopez Orozco, who's the director of La Ruta, the newest faculty member in the Smith College Theater Department, and actor Nidaline Cruz is one of the actors in this performance. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Me lleva al correr, me vuelve mal. 
Welcome back to the fabulous 413. We're here with Monica Lopez Orozco and Nidaline Cruz from La Ruta, a performance that is up at Smith currently through the weekend. How does it feel connecting with this work on stage? Um, connecting with this work, it's a roller coaster in a way, <laughs> because it's like, I think when I first got the part, I was really astounded I got the part. I didn't think I would. I usually don't get those type of parts. Um, I'm usually kind of more of the funnier, smaller characters. That's what I'm kind of known for. And then I got Maricela, who's a mother and, you know, a more grown mother who's an activist as well. And so I was like, oh, okay, what am I going to do here? And then I just started trying to find as much information on her as possible. And then as we were doing the rehearsals, I started to realize, I was like, okay, this is based off of her. But I think if I only solely put myself through how she moves and talks, then I probably have, what, like two minutes of acting presence that I I, I can kind of scourge up. And, you know, even Moni was just like, you have to connect. You have to find your character within her, you know, the real Maricela in your character. And so I also started to acknowledge, I was like, because there's not as much information on her before the event. And in this play, La Ruta, you do see Maricela before, after, middle of everything that's happened to her with her daughter. And I started to realize I'm not entitled to the real Maricela's life before everything has happened. She's only given us permission on what's happened to her of the time that she wants. So then I realized, oh, okay, I need to self-discovery way more of myself and then I just started like just being on my feet doing the work and just connecting with my scene partner like I do a lot of scenes with um the actress who plays Yolanda Maite and we have such a deep connection since when we first auditioned with one another so every time I come in and I just have my love for her both as the character and as the actress and I just let it go from there and I just feel you just have to Moni always says connect to the dialogue connect to the grammar and so I just say what I feel and I just let it happen that way and I start to think of all the love I've have for people in my life and I just let it go through me and you know and then once (laughs) I'm off the stage I have to kind of compartment how do you say compartmentalize yeah I just have to be like okay now I'm me and I'm gonna go into my costume and then (laughs) when I'm on stage it's Maricela and I'm open to everything so it's kind of like but I feel like that's important because there's a certain like there's a very intense intimacy to the tragedy of this Mm -hmm. particular play Mm -hmm. and like I think it also keys into how like time works in the play too because it kind of jumps around in timeline giving you like starts you at like basically the the breaking point and then goes around that particular moment in really interesting and kind of like trippy in a way that tragedy does to your mind Mm -hmm. sort of ways so I think that's really really cool it kind of allows the music to work as like kind of kind of a grounding point yes do you want to talk a little bit about the music? Uh, the director, Moni, uh, as she's going, sure. Monica Lopez Orozco. Yes. There are some uh, bona fide, like traditional classics that are a particularly part and built into the script that you sent us mm-hmm. as part of this performance. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and why that's so important to La Ruta? Yeah, I mean, like if we go, so Isaac did something really interesting 
particular, particularly with La Bruja, which is a very traditional song. Um, and he kind of spun it and gave it this new kind of energy where, well, what is the thing that we're fearing? Um, La Bruja is a witch. La Bruja is a yeah, witch, yeah. yes. And she comes and she like takes takes men, right? Yeah. Um, but when you, when you have women singing it and singing it with power and kind of owning this agency of, well, um, we're, we're biting back is the way I see it, especially the final moment of the play, which mm. to me is so powerful, is all these women um, coming together and singing, singing these lyrics powerfully, saying like, well, basically don't, don't, don't F with us. Thank you for saying F. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Censored myself we, we don't moment. have a dump button. Don't, <laughs> don't swear. We forgot to warn you that in advance. <laughs> in English or Spanish. There are a lot of swears in the play in Spanish as well. You can yes. get all yes. of the swears from That's the play. That's the truth. That is the truth. Um, and then we've got a traditional um, song about uh, resistance, worker resistance, El Son del Obrero, mm. which is beautiful and it's about empowerment. It's about um, um, like u- unity for the, for the worker. Um, and, and Worker Rights, which is a song that the women in the Maquila sing when they're all together. And we have a beautiful um, Siete Soles, which is a mournful, mournful moment in the middle of a prayer where you have this chorus of women singing. Um, it's called Gardenche style. And Gardenche is, it's like, it means thorny, I think. Mm. It, and like, it hurts, it's prickly. Um, and the feeling is just raw emotion and raw, raw hurt. And that comes in a moment of... Um, of reckoning for one of the characters where she's just invaded by these voices in her mind that are mourning with her as she's in front of these pink crosses that symbolize the deaths of these women that are found murdered. Um, beautifully. What am I missing? <laughs> well, I mean, the songs themselves are, are, are classics and beautiful, um, the, at least the versions that I've heard of them over the years. Yeah. Do you have more to add to that? Uh, Nidaline Cruz was one of the actors in La Ruta this weekend at yeah. Smith. Also, we have um, Sophie, who plays Desamaya in the show, and they're the ones that start off the play with their music. And every night there's like a new rendition that they have, mm. you know, so I'm always in the backstage just singing along. And the music is live? Like you have live musical performers doing all the yes, songs? Yes, we, yeah. we always do it live. So and then Sophie starts us off with Siete Soles and then they end they end us with La Bruja, and every night they have a new rendition of it that's so fascinating to listen to. Mm. And there's always an energy to the music that each night we try to always hype up before we go on because it is such a motivator, and they all tell stories. Yes. Nidaline Cruz, who's one of the actors in La Ruta. What year are you at Smith? Well, I'm not actually a Smith student. Oh. So I originally, yes, I originally auditioned for Smith because they sometimes do open casting calls for people outside Uh of the college. And I auditioned in around October. And it was a really interesting play. Had a lot of fun time auditioning. And then I didn't get it. And I completely understood why. And I heard they had a great show. And yes. And then when this show came around, I knew nothing about it. And I got an email from the stage manager the night before the last day of auditioning. And she asked, hey, do you want to audition for us again? And I said, I asked my mom because I didn't have a car back then. (laughs) So I was like, mom, can you bring me to this audition? And she was like, go for it. And so then the next day I went and I auditioned and I saw money and I was like, hello. And I was so nervous. And then we did the scenes. And I was just like, I, I don't know, this seems really intense and, you know, very, like, established. And I don't know if I can do that. But I felt like when you saw me, I think there was a connection there 
or something and I auditioned and then when it finished I got the email that I got the part so then I was like okay I had no idea what this play was about so <laughs> I was like you know what I was like I'm gonna research everything on this so Let's did you know anything it. about these stories happening in Juarez and in no not at all yeah. I'm also I'm Puerto Rican so like we have our own issues over there or our own kind of especially with you know femicide over there mm. so I I didn't have any clue of what is and what was happening and like the border with El Paso all of that you know I didn't know much and so then I immediately started researching and it just opened up this whole avenue of things that I was like wow you know like ni una mas I heard of it before and you know I saw the color purple and I knew kind of but then I was like delving deep into it and I was like oh my god like this is happening and a lot of the cast is Mexican, Chicana. So I was talking to them and they were like helping me with my accent when uh -huh. I spoke Spanish for La Ruta. Because I'm very, my Spanish is very Boricua. So I was like, no, nah, I need to make sure it sounds, you know, more authentic. Yeah. yeah. Puerto Ricans, we drop everything at the end yes. very quickly. Mexicans, they have more lyrical type of sound. So I was like researching that. And yeah, and then I would watch a lot of, I watched a lot more Mexican films. So I was like, okay, and I I watched a lot more Mexican films with, like, older women in it. And mm. so I started to walk and talk more, like, my mom and then the movies uh -huh. to get more into this older character because, you know, so that was a process. Character actors <laughs> doing yeah. method right on. I was like, yeah, I'm a real, I'm a real actor, yeah. <laughs> there's a, a, just about connection in this, in this piece because like there's a lot of that but one of the things that's really interesting I think especially like in context of it is that there's a period of time where everybody's kind of lost in their own pain and you're working through that to find those connections with everyone else did you feel like you like with the work itself that you kind of had that relationship also with connection well, to work through some of the tragedy, like... Yeah, I think when I got the play, personally in my life, I was going through a lot of grief. And I was like, I got this play and I felt like it it came to me when it needed to came to me. Because I was like, okay, here's a play that teaches you about family and about grief and about action within grief. And I took it and I played a character who literally goes through the worst thing any mother, any human being can go through. And she push she pushes through it, but at the same time, like her grief changes her and it opens her up and it motivates her. And I started to kind of heal through her as well, you know. And I was like, at the beginning of the play, I was like, oh, I'm I don't know if I can do this. I'm not as strong as her, you know. Like she cries, but she's so tough and she's so outspoken. And I was like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can connect with that specifically. But then it was like, I started to just keep going. I was like, I'm just going to keep going. Like, what is, you know, I need to stop being dramatic. I'm like, just keep doing it. Despite being an actor. Yeah. <laughs> Actors, they're so dramatic. I'm like, you know what? Just do it. No. I, you know. Actors, dramatic. Yeah. We're so dramatic. Just keep doing it. So I kept doing it. I was like, I'm here for a reason. And then it was like, it just started to make more sense. And I started to understand Maricela as just a character full of love. And her love shows in different ways. But she just, everything, every time she's on stage, everything she feels is love. And so I'm like, you know what? Okay, I'm going to see it. all this grief is, all this grief and anger is love. 
And so it started to make me feel like, okay, you can feel all these things all at once and it's going to be confusing, but it's okay if it is. And you just have to just kind of figure it out in the moment. And so I started just to do that. I'm like, just keep going with love, love in your head. And I, I just connected with her with that. She ma- she's This character has made me feel more like a woman, more of, I feel like I can do anything in my life, you know? Yeah, and that's, I think each of the cast, everyone through their character has gained something more in their own life on how to be, because these are strong, vulnerable, older Mexican women, and it's like you you play that, you're going to take some of that with you. And the cast is all women, right? Yes. That, so that was Nataline Cruz, who is one of the actors in La Ruta, happening this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Smith, and the director, Monica Lopez Orozco, who's the newest faculty member of the Smith Theater Department. Both of you are wearing shirts that say Stop Femicide. There and will in, be pictures online. Yes, <laughs> and in the in the script, there is a mention to Casa Amiga, and I'm assuming that Maricela is part of that Casa Amiga movement. Are, are you getting involved in the actual activism surrounding the border, or or is, is this, when the play is over, uh, is there more to the story with what Smith and the actors are doing in regards to the border? I hope so. I mean, that is the, that is the hope. Um, right now, my focus is what's spreading this story to everybody and then looking locally at what's happening in Northampton. We have an organization called Safe Passage mm-hmm. that helps um, women who are uh, moving on from domestic violence uh, situations. So how, how can we help locally and then how can we help globally as well. And I, I feel, I mean, there is an organization called Ni Una Mas, which is a clothing um, uh, site that sells beautiful hand-dyed, handmade clothing from women in Mexico um, so that you're putting coin in their pocket, circumventing these maquilas where they end up going missing. I mean, it's a safer place to work. Conditions are safer. Um, that is an avenue. I think we've, we forgot to add that in programming, but um, I, I'm I'm looking into what my practices are going to be beyond the show. And I do want to point out, because I think it's very impor- important to, to mention that as heavy as the play is, as, as much as it is about this profound grief and loss and despair, and something Nadine just said, was that it, it also is about love, and it's about the resilience of these women. And the playwright Isaac Gomez says, like, they are not crying all the time. Oh, no. Because they're still moving through life because they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and, there's dancing. There's joy in this in this show, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and laughter and joking. The first scene opens with laughter, profound laughter between two friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I would tell Nadeline and Maite specifically because they're in the scene, like we have to lean into these light moments because yeah. they deserve it. Yeah. Because There's that's... a moment where like, uh, I think your character says to uh, Brenda is like, yeah, La Llorona is here like talking yeah. to you. And, yeah. and she just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like those those moments of lightness because it's not, it it's the play is everything. It's so complex, but it, it it's it's on us to also honor the joy in their lives. Um, that's that's my biggest takeaway is I want people to come away from it with compassion and and seeing the strength of these women and their resilience and then asking themselves, am, how am I complicit? I mean, these women that work in these factories, they are responsible for literally the the 
pocket in your jeans. Mm. They have sewed it. They are making the technology that you have in your pocket that they have sewed. Mm -hmm. So to think consciously about where your where your things are coming from and knowing that somebody probably made it that is making a dollar twenty a day, and then they're not even guaranteed the the uh, the fundamental right of safety of safe safely getting home. Um, so think about that, but also live and bask in their joy. Nobody sees us. Nobody sees black and brown women um, and, and, and the strength. So I want that to be the takeaway, too, is to honor and to, and to celebrate and to also ask, how are we complicit in this as a global community? The play is La Ruta. It is this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Am I right? You are. Okay, give me a look like I was not going to say correct. 7.30, free for Smith students. Subtitles in Spanish this semester, or oh. this semester, this weekend. Oh, that's yes. excellent. Yes. So trans- that is yeah. excellent. And we're joined by the director, Monica Lopez Orozco, as well as the actor, Nidaline Cruz, who are part of the performance. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Thank you for having us. <laughs> Later in the show, we're going to continue our celebration of National Poetry Month with Northampton poet laureate Kim Karen Schofield, and we're plumbing the seven levels of word nerdery with word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We are going to talk about deep nerdery. Deep lexicographical nerdery. Well, this is cool because on Wednesdays on my old show was when Khalees Smith used to come on for her nerd watch and talk about all sorts of deep nerdery and you have always been the word nerd i was instructed by a listener that the perhaps the misplaced n in the middle of the word wednesday actually stands for nerds so this is fun (laughs) (laughs) emily brewster resident wordster from merriam webster our word nerd and our dictionary in springfield tell us about the depths of word nerdery that we will plumb today I thought that we would get into the very obscure topic of how definitions are actually written. Oh. Because it's something that uh, not a lot of people know about or actually need to know about, but but maybe the maybe the listeners will be interested anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm interested. I'm definitely Who interested. Who cares about them? No, I care about you, <laughs> listener. Do tell. So we can start with two basic kinds of word defining. I think we talked a few weeks ago about the two basic different kinds of lexicographers that there are at Merriam-Webster. There are general definers and there are science definers. And those people are too nerdy. We have to keep them away. I mean, like, this is as nerdy as we get. If you have to talk to a science definer, you don't even realize they're speaking English. Go talk to them. They need friends, too. Well, (laughs) and they do. Fascinating, fascinating work. But if we're talking about the two different kinds of defining, we've got these two different kinds of lexicographers, and two kinds of defining happen. One is called stipulative defining, and one is lexical defining. Mm -hmm. Now, science editors typically do stipulative defining. Stipulative defining is the kind of defining that aims to just get at cold facts about words. And those words have precise and and largely static functions in the language. They don't move around a lot. So for example, the the definition of an element is, is very straightforward. You have to know the facts and then put them into a definition. Now, the kind of defining that I do primarily, but not always, is lexical defining. And lexical defining is subject to the vagaries of usage. We talked a little bit about a few weeks ago about the definition for the word love. What is love? Right. And um, love has got both stipulative and lexical definitions. Because, say, you know, the tennis 
use of the word love has a stipulative definition. There's no debate about what it means, what a score of love means in tennis. But the other um, lexical definitions of the word can shift over time. And you've got to do some, some serious pinning down to actually figure out what they are and to kind of distill them into a meaning that reflects usage, broad usage. And the lexical definitions are what make people angry. The stipulative ones, people are comfortable with love being zero in tennis. But if you have to redefine love or a pronoun or a gender or a sexual preference, that's going to make some people upset. Seems like people mistake lexical definitions for stipulative definitions, and that's why they get upset. Probably. Well, sometimes people get upset about stipulative definitions also oh. if they debate <laughs> about you know what actually fits into that category. There's plenty to be angry at a dictionary for, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> stipulative definitions can change over time as the science changes or as the facts change. You know, the, the status of Pluto, for example, um, oh. you know, is stipulative definition, but it can shift depending on what, what the science says. Don't tell Hampshire College's genre, Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, that, because he still believes Pluto to be a planet, and I'm going to let him have that. This makes me very curious about the definition, but I'm not going to go look it up. I didn't define it because <laughs> I am not a science definer. There, there are other things about definitions that I thought we would get into, and I thought we would kind of hang them all on the definition for side eye, uh. which is... Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a, one of my a, favorite it's a, expressions. It's a fun term. But I want you to hazard a guess for when the earliest evidence we have found of the word in use comes from. Like from somebody what century. In, somebody wrote the word side eye, and you have evidence for it. Yeah, I think maybe seventeenth or eighteenth. Pick one. Oh, why? Because then I'm going to okay, play I'm the pl- Price is Right rules, and I'm going to go one year lower than you. Just one in case. century lower than me. Yeah. I'm going to say 18 then. Okay, I'll say 17th century. And the actual retail, $9.99. Police you in. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> Dang it. You're only barely there because yeah. it actually comes from 1797. There is this document, Remembrancer for Lord's Day Evenings. Here it is. Here we come to what calls for the strongest eyesight the most steadfast gazing, our being in Adam has been looked on with a side eye. The subject has provoked dislike. I may almost say contempt. It is now painful to speak of it. So that's basically using side eye in the contemporary Mm -hmm. idea of what side eye is. For those who don't know what side eye is and maybe aren't using that in the common parlance, it's like looking askance yeah, you probably uh, received one. Some situation, yeah. At some point. Yes, I receive yes. it from Khalees frequently. <laughs> Our <laughs> definition of side-eye is a sidelong glance or gaze, especially when expressing scorn, suspicion, disapproval, or veiled curiosity. And all of the above. It's that looking at looking at someone out of the corner of your eye. This definition is what we call an analytical definition. It begins with the genus term. We're going to go even even deeper into the nerdery. The word yes. being defined is called the definiendum. Whoa! It's good, right? That's a, it's yes. a that's a that's a good heavy duty word. And if you've so got in this more case, than one, side eye is the definiendum. Side okay. eye so is good, the definiendum. Good album name. I think it's like a best of collection. Well, then it would be definienda, the plural. Uh huh. Right. The first thing that you do if you are writing an analytical definition is that you put the definiendum into the most limiting category that will include it. 
And that category is called the definition's genus term. So in the case of side eye, the genus term is the phrase glance or gaze. What is the side eye? It's, it's a kind of glance or gaze. So this comes from like biology, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? And genus is where we're hitting this. So this is we're going to get eventually down to the species of side eye. <laughs> We are not, but yes. Right? Okay. I mean, these these are these terms are technical. They are kind of scientific. It's a, yeah. it's a technical practice. Defining is a pretty technical task. Once you've got your genus term, which is really what the definition really hangs on, then you add differentiae that distinguish the definiendum from other members of that genus. So <laughs> we've got the side eye being this kind of glance or gaze, and now we have to add other content that will tell us what makes a side eye a different kind of glance or gaze from, from another glance or gaze. So in this case, we give the adjective sidelong. So it's, it's not just a plain glance or gaze. You don't look directly at someone, it's sidelong. And then we get the specifying phrase, especially when expressing scorn, suspicion, disapproval, or veiled curiosity. So that is an analytical definition. So sometimes when you're defining a word, there is no genus term to be found. And then the definer has to kind of orient the reader by describing the semantic job that the genus term would do. Definitions that are written in that way are called paraphrastic definitions. So a word like ability, many different things can be, can be described as a, as a kind of ability. But if you want to define the word ability, you would use a paraphrastic definition, which kind of talks around the around the word really around what it does so okay. ability is you know competence in doing something the word form is the shape and structure of something as distinguished from its material hot means you know having a relatively high temperature it uh -huh. orients the reader by describing the semantic job the paraphrastic definition is yeah another kind of definition then sometimes we have defining by synonym people tend to not really like this either but it is useful Anyway, um, and typically we define by synonym when we're defining something that is, it's the less common word for a thing, like the term whataboutism, that gets a full definition. The act or uh -huh. practice of responding to an accusation of wrongdoing by claiming that an offense committed by another is similar or worse. There's a British term for whataboutism, whataboutery, and <laughs> just it's so the, British. The nature of it sounds so much more elevated just because. Also, ism is a it's a suffix that people don't really like. But I mean, what yeah. about ism is, is I feel like it's it's evocative in this case because what about ism is not a it's not a positive thing. A lot of the isms aren't. <laughs> Do you think people right. would feel better about it if we called it racery? <laughs> so much racery. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but at for what aboutery, it just gets a link to the definition at what aboutism. It still gets three examples, but it doesn't get the full definition that what aboutism gets. And then there are two other kinds of defining methods. One is uh, a functional description by a usage note. We use that for trademarks, right? Like Kleenex just gets, it gets identified as a trademark. And then the definition, it's a description used for a cleaning tissue. Or, um, and that's lowercase now in the dictionary, right? No. no oh, it not isn't? The, not the trademark definition, no. Sometimes okay, so Kleenex goes in with a capital K? Yeah. Huh. Sometimes a trademark term will uh, take on generic usage also, and so it'll often have two definitions. Band-Aid. Yeah, with Band-Aid? Yeah. Is Band-Aid capital and lowercase, or is that capital too? I need one for my broken finger. Yeah, how is your finger? It's fine. 
It's gross looking, but that's good. That's what it means it's I cover it with a band aid, yeah, so that it looks less gross. <laughs> you I don't even you cover it mostly with, with bandages. I use band aid brand band aids when I do it too. Shameless plug, <laughs> not an underwriter of New England Public Media. <laughs> All right, so we have two entries for band aid. One is a trademark used for a small adhesive strip with a gauze pad for covering minor wounds. Is that a minor wound, Monty? Yeah. I had to go to the hospital, so <laughs> stitches get, were involved. And get an x-ray. <laughs> it and. is broken. So, yeah, I wouldn't call it minor, but okay, it's fine. And then we have an adjective definition, offering, making use of, or serving as a temporary or expedient remedy or solution. Oh, yeah. So and then like there's a, a third definition, do they know it's Christmas time at all? Do they know it's Christmas time? No, let's, not, <laughs> let's forget that one. Yes, let's. Well, tonight, thank God it's them. It's, come on, Bono. That's the worst. Every time I hear that, I get a little emotional, and also I'm like, this is terrible. It's terrible. Anyway. It's mostly terrible. But it still works on you, see? It does, yeah. I'm a a sucker for that. I'm a sucker for Bono. I know you really are. Both entries for Band-Aid are capitalized, actually. Interesting. The last kind is expansion. And Ooh. a definition done by expansion is ju- it's just the it's it's used for an abbreviation or a symbol and it's just the words that that are the source of it. So TBH is defined by expansion as to be honest. It also has a a little note that tells you it's informal and then there are three examples, but there's not a dash and there aren't the there isn't the little boldface colon that introduces our definitions. Instead it ju- just the words TBH. So those are the various kinds of definitions that people can find in a Merriam-Webster dictionary. And those are my options as a definer when I want to define something. I have to choose among those and decide which is the most appropriate. Favorite? Oh, I mean, analytical. That's the most Uh fun. I like the phrasy one where you define it with a phrase. That one to me feels most relatable. Extra nerdy, but the paraphristic definitions is basically the rules for the game taboo. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think that's why I like that, actually. As opposed to analytical, which is what you do in Balderdash. I also like the synonym one. There was I was at a, an Amherst Library event 20 years ago, and there was a little kid there, and they were reading Jack Be Nimble, Jack Be Quick. And the person reading said, do you know what nimble means to like a five-year-old? And the five-year-old said, it means agile. And it's like, <laughs> what kind of five-year-old has this level of vocabulary that they can pull out a synonym like that for a word like nimble? And I was like, welcome to welcome to Western math. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. This is uh, quite a bit of nerdery today yes. on, on the, the day of the nerd with the, the misplaced the N nerd. in the middle of the word. And you even Wednesday. got some board games you can play out of it if any of these definitions are up your alley. Yeah. Up next... We'll continue our celebration of National Poetry Month with Northampton Poet Laureate, or erstwhile Poet Laureate, and U.S. Army veteran Karen Schofield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. It's National Poetry Month. And joining us is the erstwhile Northampton Poet Laureate. That's that's a good word for it. Yes, let's go with that. Karen Schofield. (laughs) Karen is a U.S. Army veteran who teaches writing to engineers at at UMass Amherst, where she uh, earned her Master's of Fine Arts. Karen's book, Battle Dress, won the Massachusetts Book Award and Poetry and the Barnard Women's Poets Prize. Her book, Frost in the Low Areas, won the 2014 Penn New England Award and is a Massachusetts must-read selection. Schofield, also the recipient of the 2015 Arts and Humanities Award from none other than New England Public 
radio. <laughs> which we which, used to be. Which Karen still confuses us for, evidently. <laughs> no, no, I'm getting better. Amongst other awards. Thank you for joining us, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we said erstwhile because you were the Poet Laureate, but there is no current Poet Laureate. So my contention is that you are the Poet Laureate, but that erstwhile might be the best way to describe the it, interim here. It turns out I'm very hard to replace. Yeah, so I, guess so. <laughs> I think all the other poets touched their nose and said, you know, you're it or step backwards or whatever it was. <laughs> and no one has uh, has taken the spot. You're also living in Amherst, right? I am. So Northampton doesn't even have Poets Laureate or Poet, yeah, Poets Laureate that could come from their own town. They think of Northampton widely. So I guess um, so. so I was close enough. Good luck trying to get anybody from Northampton to go to Amherst or vice versa. But, yeah, we, but, but you get good noodles we, there. We get there. Yeah. Yeah. The we, bridge is better. It is better. It is. Yeah. Would you share a poem with us? I would love to. Thank you. Monty and I were talking uh, about kids going off to college, and tis the season for those who are thinking of college and planning that for their next year. So I had a little poem about it, um, and since my son is one of the ones who is planning on going away in the fall, this is called A Mother's Wish. When he gets to college, I want him to thrive, but also to suffer a little at the hands of his roommate who will be better at ping pong no close matches. Worse, the roommate will make slide whistle sounds, dipsy-do the ball over the net, apologize for net skims on the return, but acknowledge that's game. Switch to left hand to even things up and then still crush him, all while saying, you're getting much better, with such enthusiasm that my son's insides shrivel, remembering that same voice from when, as a child, he was applauded for eating three green beans or the wobble and fall of his new two-wheeler after zero feet of upright pedaling. I want him to get better, but then I want his roommate to also improve. The roommate's spins like the dust devils outside a Midwestern dorm, sidewinders removed from physical law, powered only by a low chuckle and an, aha, did you see that? The ball hitting the table and dancing left or stepping backwards or worse, a spin toward my son's paddle and then ducking under or over or maybe even through. I want him to stare at his paddle as if it had a hole in it or had briefly melted and then solidified the paddle's secret door closed and seamless once more. The roommate will shrug as if to him it's also a mystery, a thing out of his hands. He'll tell my son that he started playing only a couple of years before coming to the States, and then he'll teach my son inventive curses in Cantonese that translate to, screw your ancestors to the 18th generation, and go microwave your lungs, and... May your whole family be bulldozed, and my son will in turn model curses which will slip out naturally when his paddle sublimates and he's crawling under the table to retrieve another ball. As it's his roommate's serve, he'll crawl out slowly, maybe bang his head a little for the sympathy it earns. He'll know he's been bulldozed. For the next five points, the roommate will spin his whole body once after every return, make himself so dizzy that my son gets on the board. 
For the finale, the roommate will slam the ball off my son's nose hard enough to make the eyes of our ancestors to the 18th generation water. My son will be a trooper and act like it was nothing, even though it's something, the way I've done for him, the way I play ping pong with him twice a day because it's how we talk or it's beyond language, and he'll recognize the hard set of his teeth as the set of my teeth in the face of a mother who says, yes, I'll play with you. Yes, my work can wait. Yes to you growing up and driving and a applying to college and moving away from me. Yes, says a mother to being surpassed and losing twice a day with something like grace. I knew it was going to get emotional at the end there. You told me it wasn't going to, and I got all emotional. But it's about ping pong. Ping I know. Pong can't it's be almost emotional. all about ping pong. And then at the end, you did the thing that I said that was like Catherine Newman, the author from I Amherst, know. also does, which gives you this really funny story and then punches you in the gut I at the end. And that's what wanna, you've done. I didn't want to tell you. Erstwhile Poet <laughs> Laureate from Northampton, Karen I'm Schofield. I'm so happy that was there. I was also <laughs> expecting it. I was just like, you're going to weep. <sighs> And I shouldn't be happy about that, but it's good to show your emotions. I think so, too. And I don't think we actually have time to justify a whole poem left in the show, unfortunately, unless we were to speed through it. So let's just continue to talk about this. Yeah, okay. This is true. You play ping pong with your son. I do. Where Do you want to disclose where your son is going to be going or no? He's going to Penn State. Uh Oh, right. A big school. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted big. His favorite color is big. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And is is there like a competitive ping pong at Penn State? One hopes. Uh Yes. Okay. He would love that. And was he getting involved in ping pong locally? No, it just in because you're wearing garage. UMass and you went to UMass and UMass has an excellent ping pong program and even people who are not part of UMass can go and play against the UMass ping pong team. Yeah, table and tennis. I've, I've thought of taking him to Zing in East Hampton. I right. just haven't figured out the hours and getting him there, but we'll do it. What is next for you as a poet, Karen Schofield? Is there, you have things on the horizon? I'm going to be in Italy this summer teaching oh. a cl- teaching a class um, to participants who are English speakers and um, and will be writing and revising our poems. And, and I've heard, you know, it's probably good pastries and things there. I, yes, so, I think that yes. goes without saying. <laughs> Have you taught um, English using poetry before? Uh, um, yes, and I, I've taught to my engineers. Um, we, I have my engineers. I, I only do it one time in the semester, but for a single day, we will write poetry and work on revisions as a way to think about revising, different ways to revise, and it's so much fun. Oh, fun. Yeah. And what? And is poetry what you're teaching to the engineers, or you're teaching <gasps> no. other things too? No, it's technical writing, uh-huh, um, wow. and poetry is just the just the the a little piece of it one day because you do nature writing also which is really lovely i do i do some nature writing which i mean how can you not it's when it's all around you it's especially if you're a poet you're gonna perceive that anyway and pull the from the nature i think i'm required yeah Yeah. you also write a lot of really powerful poems and now i'm feeling self-conscious about my own work because i definitely (laughs) do not write about nature that's okay maybe you are inspired by everything's nature when you think about it (laughs) That's a really good point. Yeah. Even concrete. <laughs> yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Needed some pieces Fair. of nature to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being part of our continued celebration Thank of National so Poetry Month. Me. Erstwhile Poet Laureate from Northampton, Karen Schofield. And do go check out more of her work. Her books are fantastic and her other poems are great. This weekend at Bombix in Florence is the Power of Truths Festival. And tomorrow in the Fabulous 413, we'll talk with two hip-hop professors. Jared Bridgman, better known as Acrobatic, who's currently a professor at UMass Boston, teaching a course called 
the history of hip-hop and hip-hop history. And living hip-hop history with Large Professor, who's coming to Daily Operation in East Hampton this weekend. Plus a look at Revitalize Springfield and our weekly conversation with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. Send us your questions. Email them to thefab413 at nepm.org. Our director is Tony Slides Off the Brain Done. Our engineer is Betsy Feels All Right Enough Cordis. Our technical team is Bart Riverside Wranglin Rankin. Kara not looking at email this week. Foster and Punk Rock Dubay. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Homebody, Dueto Castillo, Salma Hayek, and Anna Gabriel, The Beatles, Band-Aid, and Homebody. <laughs>